look, art is, is it's culture, but it's also, um, it's stress relief, it's creative expression, it's so many things, whether you do it as a career or not. All right, we're here with my good friend, Doug Ullman. Doug, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to do the obligatory bio read for those that might not know you, although I'm not sure that anyone that's listening to this podcast doesn't know you. You're well known here in town, um, but here we go. Doug Goldman is the president and chief executive officer of Pelotonia, which was established in 2008 with the objective to fund life-saving cancer research and today is a rapidly growing nonprofit. In this role, he is responsible for overseeing the strategic vision and direction of Pelotonia and also serves as an advisor to the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur James Cancer Hospital, and Solov Research Institute. Doug is a three-time cancer survivor and globally recognized cancer advocate. After overcoming chondrosarcoma during his sophomore year of college, and malignant melanoma twice since Doug and his family founded the Ullman Cancer Fund for young adults to ensure that all young adults impacted by cancer have a voice and the necessary resources to thrive. Wow. Welcome, Doug. That kind of puts things in perspective pretty quick, right? You know, you don't get to choose your path sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is kind of a good segue though, because it's really the purpose of why we're doing this podcast is because that past has been no question in, in your situation, really an important part of your of your present and your future. Um, obviously doing the work that you're doing and and you know having the experience that you had are, are obviously connected. So um, that's really what we're trying to do with this podcast is show people how their life story and journey really can be used to serve serve you and and to serve others. Um, and boy, you're you're a really amazing example of that. So uh, we'll just say thanks right away for being that you know kind of um, model and inspiration for so many people. Well, thanks, thanks for the opportunity to share more. So yeah, let's let's go back, um, you know, to the beginning. Why don't you kind of share with our listeners, you know, your kind of story, your early kind of childhood and and kind of what that looked like for you. Yeah, you know, I had what I would describe as like a pretty incredible upbringing, phenomenal parents, uh, an older brother, three years older. You know, we grew up in a middle-class community. Uh, We grew up in the first planned city in America, a place called Columbia, Maryland, um, where it was built from scratch with the specific intention of creating a diverse place for people to come together. Um, and I know that sounds really cliche and it sounds like, you know, idealistic. And it was back then, 55 years ago. Um, but to us as kids, it was just normal. And, and it was just a, a, an interesting place to grow up, but we didn't know any different. Um, my dad was a, an estate planning attorney. My mom was a, an artist um, and an interior designer. And uh, again, we had just an amazing middle-class American upbringing public school, played sports, had friends in the neighborhood, and, you know, really looked at life optimistically and, and you know, was definitely instilled with the belief that you could do anything 
and you could make a difference in any shape you wanted or any form that you wanted. Um, and that came directly from our parents. You know, it's an interesting thing, you know, oftentimes, you know, we'll find ourselves, you know, on, on this podcast, maybe talking about trauma or abuse or, you know, kind of childhood experiences that weren't so pleasant and how that was, you know, an obstacle, a challenge that ended up serving somebody in their life. It's, it's not, I think, any different to be in a household that's loving and that's modeling in a community that's modeling all these beautiful things. It's really important that we highlight that too, <laughs> right? You know, because good for you, good for your parents. Um, and, you know, obviously you've done good with that. It's not like you, you know, kind of got lulled into some false sense of life just being pleasant all the time, right? But it shaped who you were. Having a very positive experience shaped who you are. And, and I think that's something we want to highlight. Yeah. I mean, look, I've, I've dealt with a number of, you know, crises, right? And, and, and we all do and obstacles and significant challenges and we can talk about them. Um, to each of those, I've sort of come with a, a perspective, I think, based on my upbringing that anything was possible. And whether that means surviving cancer or whether that means emerging from a crisis or whether that means um, seeing the, the small sliver of hope in a situation that seems bleak to many others, you know, I, I don't know entirely where that comes from, but I can tell you a lot of it comes from the place I grew up in and, and the way that our parents raised us. And you know, that may or may not be unique, but there are certain times in my life where I've had challenges that, they, look, they were brutal and, and, and stressful and hard, um, but I also, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and I, I could see the, the, the sort of after phase um, a lot more quickly maybe than, than others. And, and again, I don't think I'm special in that, but I do think my parents instilled a belief and, and, and an understanding that, um, you know, we can, we can accomplish things uh, in, in interesting and unique ways. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, you know, um, I'm kind of drawn to the, the artist kind of side of your household, um, having a mother that was an artist and, and want to kind of like explore the idea of creativity with you. You know, I believe that being creative doesn't mean that you have to be a, a fine artist. And I think you guys continue to be um, super creative in how you approach your work and probably have been doing that throughout your life and career. And I'm wondering if, if, those dots were connected for you or what kind of influence growing up with um, a parent that was, you know, an artist really had on you? Yeah, no, I think it was pretty profound. I mean, you know, I, I'm, my mom used to come and teach art classes at school when she was an interior designer. I mean, I, I became obsessed with architecture and I would draw only on graph paper and I like wanted to build things, and design things. And for a while, I thought I was going to go down that path. Look, art is, is, it's culture, but it's also um, it's stress relief, it's creative expression, it's so many things, whether you do it as a career or not. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating recently is my mom uh, draws a sketch every day, uh, at least one. She posts on Facebook every day. And it's her way of getting through this pandemic. And she does a single line sketch where she doesn't pick up the pen from the paper. 
and she draws one thing with words, with pictures, faces, whatever, every single day. And people now look to it on Facebook, her friends, as like hope and, and inspiration and optimism. And we grew up around that. We grew up around using art as a way to express feelings or a way to express your, 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 you know, your situation. Uh, I don't think I've ever really thought about it necessarily or connected that dot in a deep way, but it, it was interesting to have sort of an attorney and an artist and mm-hmm. sort of um, the, the two very different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to kind of come back to the the architecture piece. I'm curious about that, but um, tell me a little bit, kind of. Um, so, how does it go from there? So, you know, what was like? What was it like as you kind of progressed through school, high school? Uh, what were you like? Yeah, so I was, um, you know, look, I was very focused on sports, um, and yet I was also focused on service, which is a piece that, as I've reflected back on my life, I, I sometimes put in the background actually because. Soccer became sort of the thing for a period of time. I was fortunate to go to a, an amazing public high school where the soccer program was world-class. And I was able to play with just amazing teammates and, and had this phenomenal coach who um, had a much bigger impact on my life than I could have ever imagined at the time. And, uh, and I can share more about that. But, but the other piece of my life that, that I sort of sometimes neglect to think through I was the student member of the school board uh, for the county in which we lived, which was a, a, a full member. I sat up on the dais every meeting and, and represented the student body of, of the various high schools around the county and participated really actively in a lot of service-related efforts. And so as I, as I think back when, when friends of mine say, you know, gosh, if you didn't get cancer, what would you be doing? People who knew me back then say, oh, he, he would be doing the same work may not be focused on cancer, but he'd be doing something in the service sort of side of the world. And, and I think that's something I think about a lot because while cancer found me and I ended up on that sort of path, it could have easily been something else based mm-hmm. on my experience in my, in my childhood. And, and describe that, you know, kind of early on, what, was it just kind of like a calling, a thing that you just kind of felt propelled to do? What were you thinking about, you know, kind of aspirations or, or what was it that was kind of underneath all of that, if, if you know? Look, I think my parents were very active in the community. You know, I always say, not from a standpoint of like writing checks, from a standpoint of like stuffing envelopes. You know, our dining room table in the house that I lived in until I was about 10 you know, the dining room table was like a, it had those extra leaves you could put in the middle of the table and expand it. And, and we would expand it and people would come over and there'd be meetings. And the meeting might be, you know, a group from the social action committee of the synagogue, but it could be the PTA. It could be, you know, another community group and they would have their meetings in our house and they would volunteer and they would, you know, be talking about sort of going to cook meals for the homeless shelter or whatever it might have been on, on any given night. And, you know, again, I don't think my parents told us what to do. We just witnessed that type of activity and we witnessed people doing these sort of selfless acts. And I think that more than anything probably influenced our decisions, my brother and my decisions to pursue various aspects of sort of things in the service bucket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just kind of 
looking at you with your with your new buzz cut, and I'm I'm uh, well aware of you know kind of how you're doing that with your kids. You know, maybe it's it's in the DNA, but the the modeling is you know lives on. I mean, it's so fun to watch your kids on social media. Like they're legitimately like energized and activated, and and it's not because you know you're telling them, hey, do this or do that. You know, you can see they've kind of caught the bug and how infectious uh, being of services. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things I struggle with, and I think a lot of us struggle with is when you're so passionate about what you do, it can, it can blur where you're spending your time and how you're prioritizing. And for me, having kids was a big light, light bulb moment because I was traveling all the time and you know, just prioritizing work and, 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 and the mission, so to speak. And two things happened uh, both last year, actually, that made me think a little bit differently about this situation. One was I was leaving on a work trip and my daughter was sitting at the kitchen table and she said, dad, I wish you had a job where you didn't have to travel. And I mean, I, I was like tearing up as I'm like heading to the garage to go to the airport. And then she paused and she said, but I'm so glad you do what you do because you get to help more and more people. And it was like, you know, she was seven at the time. It's like, I, I mean, I was still tearing up, but I was so grateful for that insight from her. And, and then not, not too long after, my son came down one day and he was carrying a plastic bag of change from his room. And he put it on the kitchen table before breakfast. And he said, Dad, I want to donate half of this to Pelotonia and half of this to Nationwide Children's Hospital. You know, it was like $3. And I'm like, so did he wake up thinking, how could I help other people? Like, where did it come from? Nobody had talked to him that morning. Nobody had, did he dream about it? Like, where did that... And to me, I was like, man, if I do nothing else in my life, but instill that in, in our kids, I'll be so excited. Yeah, well, I think you're doing it. And, and I'm curious, you know, we're going to maybe jump around here a little bit because I, I want to go back and talk about soccer and team and coach. But I'm just curious while we're talking about this, it, it, you know, I know for me, this time has forced me to really be home. And and kind of see what that's like to not travel. You know, I'm like you. I, I do travel, not a ton, but um, I travel a decent amount for business. I'm involved in a lot of networks and communities, and like to go see other things. We were in Austin together, that kind of stuff. But but you know, I I really hate being away from my family and seeing kind of what it's like to be home every night for dinner and to be able to hang out and watch movies late and, you know, exercise and be active and laugh and take walks. You know, it it is illuminating for me going to make me think long and hard about, you know, that balance, that balance between, you know, being out there doing something that is important and making sure that you're home too. I'm just curious, you know, if you've had any kind of, you know, reflections or thoughts about what this time is, is making you assess. Yeah, no, I, I, I think thought about it a lot. I mean, I, I, similar to you, I mean, I start to think through, hey, that trip last year, was that really critical? Could I have done that on Zoom? Could I have done that by phone? You know, I think a lot of us are, are thinking that way. And, you know, I've always believed that there's this false sort of narrative of, you know, we're in the quote, prime of our professional lives. And yet it's the only period of time when our kids are in our homes. 
And like, how do we prioritize the fact that I have 10 years left with my kids in my house? You know, and why, why are those 10 years supposed to be my most successful professionally? And I think this period of time is, is highlighting the fact that maybe we've got it all wrong. I mean, yeah, we've talked a little bit about this and, you know, there's like this idea that um, we do all the most important things when we're least prepared. We get married, we pick careers, right? Like we're, we're so uh, inexperienced in doing any of that, you know, being parents, right? Um, it's not, and so you do really, you know, kind of have to look at it and decide, you know, do we have it wrong? You know, are there real changes in, in the kind of fabric of society that, that need adjusting and, you know, how do we start to do that now? Yeah. I mean, I was literally an hour ago sitting on the carpet playing Uno with my six-year-old. And it just hit me. It's like, there's no other place I should be right now. I'm playing Uno with him. <laughs> like, and, and, and it, was, it felt great. It was like a relief, a stress relief from the, the rest of the chaos that's going on around us. And I could just see it in his eyes that like for him, that, that 30 minutes of playing on the carpet was just incredible for both of us. And if we were at work, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> right. And you know, look, you and I both know that you know, we have very fortunate lives, right? That there's a lot of real challenge out there in the world right now. Um, people that are sick, people that are unemployed. I mean, it's it's tough, tough times. We have the luxury of being able to have the experience we're having. Still challenging, still hard, you know, in our own way. But, you know, it is what it is. And kind of similar to, you know, your experiences is, a child, you know, you know, our experience is what it is right now. And, and really learning and making the most of it, I think is really important. You know, when you're, when you're sitting down playing Uno with your, your, your six-year-old, yeah, you're, you're creating quality time for them, but that's energizing for you too. Totally, That's charging your batteries to go out and do your work. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back a little and talk about uh, soccer. You know, I'm curious, you mentioned your coach, you know, you're playing at high level and, you know, that's got a kind of a whole set of learnings there. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I was fortunate again from a young age to be afforded the opportunity to play on a lot of different teams and travel and, and literally travel the world. And, and, and when it came to high school, it was an interesting situation because we had this public high school. The town that I grew up in, um, a few years before I went to high school was named by Sports Illustrated sort of the soccer hotbed of America. And so it was a big deal. And every kid wanted to grow up and play on the teams at the various high schools. And, you know, we had this coach who, in a, in a, in a loving way, I'll describe as sort of the Bobby Knight of high school soccer. You know, people who played for him tended to love him. People who played against him thought he was maniacal and, you know, over the top. And he did a lot of things that were dramatic. And again, at the time, they seemed harsh and different and, and, and overbearing. But looking back, like, I mean, I learned so much. So I'll give you an example. We, in order to try out for the team, you had to juggle the ball 150 times uh, on your feet. And so when you showed up on the first day, he'd say, everybody line up and you got to juggle the ball on your feet 150 times. And after you did it, he would say, congratulations, now you can try out for the team. And people would say, wait a minute, I did it. And he'd say, well, no, 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 that doesn't mean you're any good. That just means you know what discipline is. That just means you trained for it. That just means you spent all summer working towards a goal. 
And now I know you have the mental toughness to achieve something like that. And it was just these small things that he did that, um, again, at the time we saw as nuances or, or, or nuisances, I should say, um, but they were profound. I mean, another thing, I'll give you an example. He would say to the parents, or sorry, he would say to the kids on the first day of trials, if your parent, now mind you, he was the uh, science teacher at the high school as well, one of the science teachers. He would say, if your parent ever speaks to me about soccer, you'll never play again. So every kid was mortified, would go home and tell their parents, whatever you do, do not say anything to him about soccer. So the parents stayed away from him. He got to do his thing. And, um, you know, there was lots of other things around mental toughness and, and mental errors. He, he forced us to run a hill 25 times every time you made a mental error. And a mental error was doing anything that you knew how to do that you didn't execute because it's just concentration in his mind. So if you, if you kicked the ball out of bounds and there was nobody on you, that was a mental error. You didn't concentrate. You knew how to keep the ball out of bounds and you didn't do it. And during the game, he would keep track. And the next day, you'd have to run this hill, sometimes 75 times, 100 times, whatever it was. All that to say, it was an important part of my life. He was an important part of my life. And not to, to, to brag at all, but through my freshman and sophomore year, we didn't lose one game. So we won every game. We won the state championships. And then heading into my junior year, we were ranked number one, supposed to win it all again. And I ended up with two other players getting into a whole, a whole uh, mess of trouble, which was really my first, I guess, real challenge, uh, so to speak, uh, or at least public uh, challenge. But the, the short... Okay, okay well, th- this is good because I don't know Doug the troublemaker. <laughs> I, I know Doug the like man of service and upstanding citizen and like unbelievable dad, husband, friend. So let's talk about Doug Trouble just a little bit. I'm curious to hear that story. Look, we all, we all have our, uh, our faults and, and challenges, but, but essentially two of my closest friends and teammates, um, uh, one of whom was on the Olympic team at the time. I mean, you know, amazing players and, and people. Uh, we decided to go to the homecoming dance. We decided to uh, get somebody's sibling to buy us alcohol. We were in the dance at the school and we get called out into the hallway and lo and behold, there were undercover police officers in the parking lot and they had spotted beer cans in our car. We got suspended from school. Uh, we got kicked off the soccer team. Uh, I was on the front page of the Baltimore Sun. This was, the, again, the number one team, the three best players, or three of the best players, not the best players. And, uh, you know, we thought our lives were over. It was our junior year. We thought we'll never play college soccer. We'll never get admitted to college. You know, how could we face anybody in the community? How could we even come out of our homes? It was devastating. I mean, it, it was, and it was our fault. You know, we, we, we made the mistake and, but it was a low point for sure. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, also pretty normal, right? I mean, I've got a couple of teenagers. I was one once too, you know, but I'm curious, you know, what happened in the community? You know, you described this kind of loving, supportive community, and you had all these kind of fears about what people would think and what kind of impact it would have on you. What was it like? You know, were people very judgmental? Um, how did it impact you? Was it was it better or worse than maybe you thought? You know, at the time I was, um, you know, again, I wasn't mature enough to really understand it. So I was... I was frustrated, right? My first reaction was, how can I not play soccer again? And what will my coach and teammates think? And, 
you know, there was a certain sense of responsibility, right? I mean, we were captains of the team. We let everybody down. You know, there was that feeling of like disappointment. Like people seemed disappointed. And, you know, yeah, it was an error in judgment and it was a mistake. But I think it was the first time I started to think through like the ramifications of your decisions can be way more profound than just impacting yourself. And so, you know, I was embarrassed. I was like pretty, pretty embarrassed by the whole thing. And, and it, as most things like that turn out in the long run, it wasn't an enormous deal. Um, but at the time it was, and I, and I will tell you, and this is a story I have never really shared, but it, it was years later, years later, probably at least 10 years later, maybe more, that uh, I was initially invited back to my high school to give the commencement address. And I was then uninvited by somebody who remembered that incident. That was interesting. That was really interesting because to me, that was like a blip on the radar many, many years ago. But uh, so anyway, it, you know, you just never, yeah. you never know. Well, I'm going to put a vote in for you to do the Bexley commencement. <laughs> Have you done that? I, no, you you should, and we're gonna we're gonna make good on that here in Bexley. But you know, um, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, that's kind of what I was curious about, and I'm curious, kind of, you know, how your coach handled it too. Obviously, you were suspended, but you know, this kind of you know righteousness. You know, I personally think it's a fine line. You know, there there is such a thing as tough love. There is such a thing about driving for results and discipline and teaching. And then there's also like, we got to love people for their imperfections too, right? And and what you did is a pretty normal thing to do for a junior in high school. And not that it's okay, not that it's right, right? But like, you know, you, you didn't commit a crime that you shouldn't be able to overcome yeah. and, and be forgiven for. And so I'm just curious kind of what that, you know, means to you. Well, I think, look, it was interesting because my coach, Coach Sarah, who, again, was a disciplinarian. I mean, he was, I mean, I, I was frankly more scared of facing him the next day than my parents. Like, you know, like, I had no idea what he would do. And a year later, he was asked by the Baltimore Sun, you know, why did you name Doug the captain of the team again senior year? And he said he's paid his dues. Like, this isn't going to define who he is. and. And the three of us who were all in that incident together, we all went on to play college soccer, you know, and, and, and it didn't define our lives. And at the time we thought it would. And I guess that's maybe one of the messages is like, we're not defined by one, you know, experience, even though in the moment it feels very much that way. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So you did go on, you played college soccer, right? Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about kind of, Next, you talked about, you know, the architecture and, 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 you know, you're, you're playing now college athletics, you know, what was your, what was that experience like that time in your life? Yeah, it was, it was really humbling. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, uh, again, my parents are amazing people. And, and one of the things that I will never forget is during the process of deciding where to go to college, my dad and my mom, my dad in particular, one night said, you need to go to college where if you break your leg and never play soccer again, you're going to be the most fulfilled. And there were lots of opportunities to go to lots of different places. And I ended up at Brown University uh, with an amazing young coach and, and some amazing uh, friends and players and teammates. And, and lo and behold, I was diagnosed with cancer, you know, a year later. So the summer after my freshman year. And so it wasn't a broken leg, but 
the prophecy of like, you got to go where you want to go and, and where you're going to feel comfortable and be around people that you want to be around. But I will tell you that the, the freshman year of college was humbling because I wasn't good enough athletically compared to my experience in high school. So, you know, it was just a humbling, you know, being 18 and playing against 22 and 23 year olds was a lot harder than I uh, expected. And I didn't perform as well as I wanted to. And my, my focus after my freshman year was really to come back stronger. And I trained all summer and, uh, and then ended up uh, through a, a series of flukes being diagnosed with cancer uh, in August of 1996. And, you know, it was, a, it was a really challenging time, as you can imagine. But, but I think one of the biggest challenges was that I had no symptoms. And so psychologically, I was in the best, physically, I was in the best shape of my life. And psychologically, I didn't feel sick. And so to discover that you're sick when you don't feel ill is a really hard thing for anybody, much less somebody who's 19 years old, who has this sort of unfettered optimism about the future and, and sort of what they want to do. Um, so it was a really, between the humility of not performing athletically and then sort of striving to get better and improve and then being sort of knocked down by the diagnosis, it was a, you know, it was a, a, a transformational period for sure. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'm I'm curious just to kind of have you expand a little bit on on you know what happened. You you, you don't have symptoms. You said it was a series of of fluky events that kind of led you to the diagnosis. I'm curious, you know, about that, and then also, you know, we've all sadly, you know, had experiences with people that have had that, you know, you've got cancer conversation. Um, in 1996, that was a different conversation. Also, sadly, right, that, you know, it's is a little more of a common uh, conversation today or experience today. But, but what was that like for you? And kind of how did that come to be? Yeah. So again, a series of things had to happen for me to even discover that I was or, or be diagnosed. Um, essentially what happened was it was early August, 1996. I was training all summer. I had several friends from home who also played at Brown. And so we were training all summer together and a bunch of other guys in the, in the neighborhood. And uh, one night we were at my parents' house and sitting on the couch, the Baltimore Orioles game was on. I remember that. And my brother, who is three years older, uh, at the time was working on Bill Clinton's campaign. And he was traveling from state to state and he was sort of just all in on the presidential election, but he happened to be home that night and he would just sort of pass through when he had time. And we're, we're a very competitive family. Um, and so I said to my brother, I'm like, you, you look like you're out of shape. You need to get in shape. And he probably said, all right, tough guy, like let's, let's go for a run. And so we went for a three mile jog through the neighborhood and it was an August, humid, hot, like muggy night. And I'd had childhood asthma. And when we got back to my parents' house, I was just wheezing. And I couldn't figure it out. Like, I just, it, it was abnormal. And after about an hour, my parents were like, huh, it's weird. Maybe you should go to the emergency room. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. Like, it'll, it'll pass. And like an hour later, my parents were like, no, let's, let's go to the emergency room. So we went and uh, I'd never been sick. I'd never really been to the hospital. I never really had any issues. But as we were leaving the emergency room, because the physician on call said, you're totally fine. Probably an allergy, something in, the, in the, the pollen or something outside is just sort of aggravating you. 
as we were walking out, he said, while you're here, though, let's just do a chest x-ray. So he does the chest x-ray. I'd never had one before. And he looks at it and he says, you're good to go. So I go home. I sleep. I wake up. I feel totally fine. I was coaching soccer at a youth camp. So I went to coach that day and I came home at about two o'clock and there was a message on the answering machine, my parents' house. And it was our family physician. And Dr. Millis said, I was in the hospital today visiting another patient and they notified me that you were in. So I went to radiology and I looked at your x-ray and he said, you need to have a CT scan immediately. And what he saw, again, this is 96, so the technology was like a lot different than it is today. All he saw was a tiny shadow behind my heart. And he thought I had a massive heart condition. And so he said, I made you an appointment for this afternoon. My mom and I drove over and had the CT scan. And, and all I can remember, and this says everything you need to know about my mom, was that as I was sliding out of the, the, the machine, through a glass window in the corner of the room, the technician was looking at a computer screen and my mom was standing behind the technician. The technician was pointing to the screen. I have no idea how she got back there. I have no idea how she like convinced them to let her get back there. But the point is he was pointing at this mass that was growing behind my heart and in, in, in my rib cage. And, um, and so uh, at that time, it, it took another twist. At that time, they said, you know, the chances of this being cancer are 2%. 2%. 2%. Because you have zero symptoms. You're not ill. It could have been there for years, causing you no problems. They said, but you should probably have it taken out. And I went to the first doctor and he said, you know what, if you want to go back and play the soccer season and come have the surgery over winter break, totally fine. We think this is not cancer. We think it's slow growing. You know, you'll be good. And I thought about it and then I was like, I can't, I can't live knowing there's something that shouldn't be there, there. Had the surgery and the pathology was sent around for review by a bunch of people. Uh, and about two weeks later, I sat down with my parents and a doctor in Baltimore and the doctor said, well, it's confirmed you have chondrosarcoma and, and uh, it's very rare. That's why they sent the pathology around. And so anyway, all those things had to happen. I mean, I had to go to the emergency room. The doctor had to order the x-ray. My doctor had to be there the next day. I mean, like all these things, I had to choose to have the surgery. And then, you know, so on the one hand, I felt really fortunate. And on the other hand, I was told 98% chance this is cancer. And, and the other thing I would say too is that, as you mentioned, like, yeah, it's more prevalent now. We, we, as you get older, you know more people, you experience the disease in different ways. But the reality was at 19, I didn't know anything about cancer. Right. I was so naive. I mean, I, I didn't know anything. So it wasn't, it wasn't, it was scary, but it wasn't scary because I didn't, I wasn't educated. Mm. I didn't. That's interesting because I would have thought, you know, not knowing anything about it at that time uh, would have made it scary, yeah, um, more scary, you know. Um, but you know, you were saying you didn't even really know enough to know how scared you should or shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, it was definitely frustrating. Mm -hmm. It was also scary, but it was more of like, you know, frustration. an inconvenience. Yeah, it was like, yeah. it was like, wait a minute, I was healthy last week. Now right. I had part of my rib cage taken out. I can't laugh and I can't sit up straight and I can't walk. Like, yeah. oh and I'm supposed to be in college having fun playing soccer. Right. Yeah. Oh, for something that a week ago I didn't know anything about, I didn't know existed in my body. Like, mm -hmm. So it was, it was a real um, look. As, at, at 19, you're coming of age. You're supposed to be independent. 
Yeah. And now you're relying on everybody else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think I knew that you were a three-time survivor. So tell me, you know, kind of how that went for you. You, you got the surgery, you were treated. Were, did you have big gaps in between having uh, your second and third bouts? So I was really lucky. I, uh, because they caught this first tumor early and were able to surgically remove it, um, I was able to go back to school. And my parents said to me, they said, look, you can stay home if you want, but all your friends are going back to school. So if you want to sit at home, you might be miserable. But if you want to go back to school, even if who cares about your grades, who cares, but you'll at least be around your teammates, you'll be around your friends and like in that environment. And it was the best decision I ever made because it got some sense of normalcy back quickly. Um, and it wasn't until the spring of 1997. So essentially, you know, eight, eight months later uh, that I was diagnosed with melanoma. Um, so a totally different type of cancer that they probably never would have sort of been scanning for had I not had the first type. And then three months later, I was diagnosed with invasive melanoma. Um, and so the three diagnoses all came between my 19th and 20th birthdays, all within 10 months. And uh, to be honest, the second and third diagnoses were uh, caused more fear because I thought I had emerged. I thought I had like gone through this thing. And, and then it was like, wait a minute, no, now you have something else. And I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> like I learned everything there was about chondrosarcoma. Now you're telling me some other name that I don't understand that I don't, you know, have a good handle on, and and it just uh, it created just a roller coaster of like huge ups mm-hmm. and downs. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, because now you're like, you know, it, it you can maybe think it's fluky one time, two percent, but now you're getting hit a couple of times, and you're starting to worry, you know. Is something going on with my body that's that's you know concerning, scary here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, pretty powerful stuff. You know, to kind of put things in perspective. You know, um, as we said earlier, you know, when you when you have your health, you know, you you've got a lot, and um, you know, at that age, you know, when it is supposed to be a really kind of joyous, happy, free time in life to be dealing with some, you know, real serious stuff, you know, is, is not a small thing at all, but obviously, you know, you've overcome that you, um, you know, you, you, you moved your way through college and, and kind of into the world of service. And I know we've talked and and met some of your colleagues along the way, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of what happens after college and how you started to kind of work yourself into, into the career that you're in. Yeah. One thing I I would say that I learned through those three experiences, and and I think probably anybody who's been through something like that understands, is that you you try to keep some semblance of control over things you can control. And and I think that's played a a role in sort of things that that came sort of professionally or, or crises that I've dealt with since. But this idea that when you have cancer, you, you're actually not in control um, of so many things, but there are certain aspects. And the only reason I bring this up is that you know when I was when I was in the sort of throes of college and all these diagnoses, my roommate, who, who to this day is a great friend of mine in Colorado, um, he had to put up with some crazy behavior, like 
because I, 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 I went from being nonchalant about a lot of health related things to being like vigilant about everything. I mean, uh, fresh squeezed carrot juice, spinach, you know, uh, meditation ta- at the time tapes, <laughs> you know, like how long ago that was. Um, but you know, I wouldn't go anywhere where they were smoking nowhere. If we're smoking, I would leave. I couldn't be around. Like, and so part of that was a, a mechanism of control. It was like, I can only control certain things um, when, when the world is sort of swirling. So anyway, post, post-diagnoses, um, when I was in college, uh, about a year after my third diagnosis, I got an email from Lance Armstrong, uh, who I didn't know and, and, and didn't sort of know anything about. But he had just finished his cancer treatment and he just dropped me a line uh, on email. And that's sort of what led to a two-year back and forth with him almost like a pen pal relationship and then ultimately moved to Austin, Texas to, to help his organization. So at the time that he reached out, I had founded a nonprofit to really link young adults uh, because I, I felt isolated. Um, and, you know, when you're 19, it's very different than being five and it's very different than being 50. You know, when you're five, you've got your parents. When you're 50, you have your life experience. And when you're 19, you're in this sort of young adult maturation period and and there really wasn't anything out there for people in that in that phase of their life less defined by age and more defined by what you're dealing with in life and so i started out in my dorm room and you know didn't know anything about how to do it didn't know (laughs) what it meant to fundraise or or create a mission statement or build a board or i mean i just was super naive and and sort of learned as we went but the one lesson i learned in that phase of life was that when you have an idea and you're passionate about it, people want to help. And like everybody was like, what can I do to help? How can I volunteer? How can I support you? How can I? And that was just so reassuring. And I think it just shows like the best of humanity. Um, because I think people deep down want to do anything they can to help others. They just sometimes need the opportunity. And if you give them the opportunity, they'll do it time and time again. Um, so I was running that from my dorm room. And got this email from Lance saying, hey, I see what you're doing. I've just started a foundation. Let's stay in touch. And we just sort of went back and forth, back and forth. And then he asked me if I would... I'm just curious. Do you know how he found you? How did he see what you were doing? Yeah, I do. It's a small world. There was a, a, there's a sports writer for the New York Times who was a, a Brown University alum. Mm-hmm. And the Brown Alumni Magazine did a big feature on my situation. And this New York Times writer literally cut it out and sent it to Lance. Wow. Said you should read about this kid. That is awesome. I mean, again, this is 1997, so this was yeah. Like pre, that's you know, yeah. That's how- you didn't you didn't like you know forward a tweet. Correct. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> um, and uh, and again, I mean, I remember getting the email, sitting at you know this massive desktop computer that took up the whole desk, you know, um, and. Uh, so yeah, that's how it, it started. And, and, you know, I always say, you know, Lance, for, for you know, all that he accomplished and, and people have their varying views on him, obviously, but the authenticity, and it's ironic that I use that word, but the authenticity through which he reached out to me in 1997 is something that I think very few people ever had, had a window into. You know, yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Let's talk a little bit about Livestrong and Lance and that experience, because you know, I, I'm not sure what kind of the current memory or or kind of dialogue is around him and and 
what happened. You know, my, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, I don't know if you're watching these, um, the last dance, the, the, the Chicago Bulls, right? Um, so, you know, it, it's my, I'm watching my kids, I'm watching with my kids and my kids are kind of like doing a lot of debating about LeBron and, and Jordan and who's better. And, and I'm the only one in the room that was actually around to, to say like, well, here's what I saw. Like, I remember that game and here's what happened. And, and so I remember Lance as the just dominant athlete in the sport. Um, you know, in my, I wasn't really uh, following cycling, but he, he like for a lot of people made it a household thing to watch, to know about. And, and then Livestrong also, you know, comes on the scene as this, this like phenomenally innovated nonprofit, you know, that's got just tons of popularity and traction. And, and there was a lot of good that was done. And, you know, obviously there's, you know, a human that's flawed that, you know, made a lot of mistakes and, and, you know, maybe, you know, hurt a lot of people, you know, th- there was a lot there, you, you know, you were there firsthand, but, you know, in my experience, kind of similar, you know, to what we we're talking about earlier, you know, I, both can be true and, and I'm not sure kind of, you know, where people have landed on all of that, but, you know, you were there firsthand. So I'd love to hear kind of your, you know, experience. Well, you know, look, I think for many people, there's a, there's an ethical dilemma. It's like, how do you weigh the good and the bad? And there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And, you know, if I've always said, if if you were somebody who was sick or had a family member who was sick and the foundation helped you, you could care less about the other aspect. And if you were a hardcore cycling fan and never sort of knew or interacted with the foundation, you might have a totally different view. Like everybody's sort of on this spectrum. And I think that's what makes it so challenging. It's interesting you bring up The Last Dance because I was having the same debate with some of my friends recently. And, um, you know, we did a lot of work with Nike over the years. And, and I never will forget this, but in a meeting at Nike once, somebody said, you know, there's a difference with the one-namers. And I sort of looked at him and he said, Michael, Tiger, Lance, Mia, like all these one-namers. And what this person said is, he said, those people don't want to win. They want to crush you. And, and, he, and he was basically relaying that there's a common thread in a lot of these people who dominated their sport. Tiger doesn't want to beat you by one. He wants to beat you by 12. Michael Jordan didn't want to beat you by one. Like they want to, they want to pummel you. It's in there. It's who they are. And, and Lance was the same way. And that's why he dominated a sport. Whether everybody was cheating or not, he won. He dominated, right? Like, and I'm not defending what he did, um, but there is a common sort of thread through a lot of those people at, at that level. Um, but look, it was a time of, of incredible learning and incredible uh, impact and also these ethical sort of questions that were raised when it came to light that he had cheated. And, you know, one of the things, and you'll appreciate this, I think, as a, as a parent, you know, one of the things that um, I think elicited the biggest reaction was the bullying. It wasn't the cheating on a bike in Europe. Because frankly, that doesn't impact my life. Like, I don't care what happened in Europe 20 years ago. Like, it's not. But there is such an aversion, and rightfully so, in society of bullying. And so accusing people of doing things 
when they're telling the truth or, you know, going after people that go against you or, you know, that whole behavior, whether it's in a middle school or whether it's in adulthood, like to me, that's my observation of what has sort of gone down is that, you know, that's what really was the trigger for, for a lot of people. Um, version to we, we picking on people that are telling the truth. No. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, you know, what was it like for you to be there during this time, you know, with um, crisis, right? I mean, uh, for that organization, it was a crisis. Uh, you know, what was it like? You know, we're in one now. You know, that was a different kind of crisis, right? Self-inflicted. But you were you were an innocent bystander, and now here you are. You know, what was it like to be there at that time? It was um, extremely stressful. It was beyond overwhelming. It was hard to process at the time. It it, it drove, you know, this downward spiral of like not eating well, not exercising, not sleeping well, like losing weight. Were you shocked by what was happening? What was, or, or you know, did you kind of see Lance's other side that people didn't see and not surprised? What was your reaction? Well, so good question. So the reality was that, that the way I described it is the clouds were getting darker. So the day that it actually came out that he had cheated, I was not surprised at that moment because six months earlier, it was leaking that some of his old teammates had testified. And I mean, there were things happening that sort of led to a belief that, that this was going to be true. And in fact, uh, one of my colleagues came to me the day that the official report came out and she said, did you read it? And first of all, I was like, oh, over a thousand pages. And I said, no, I didn't read it. She said, really? And I said, it's either true or it's not. It doesn't matter what the thousand pages say. Like it's, it's binary at this point. And so I wasn't surprised at that moment. You know, when I was young and naive, when I first moved to Austin, I thought to myself, nobody that has had cancer would put anything in their body. Like they, they wouldn't do that. You know, that was my naive sort of belief. And it was a sports story at that point. It would sort of come every July and it would go, every July and it would go, every July and it would go. And as he retired, it started to bleed into the foundation work because his level of engagement in the foundation only increased. And he was doing more with us. He was the chair of the board. And so th- those things blurred together. And that's when it really started to impact um, our work. Uh, the way I would describe it, and I just described this recently related to the pandemic that we're going through is, we had the three Ps. This crisis was personal because of our personal relationships. It was professional because my job was to lead an organization and it was public. And each of us would, each of us will in our lives have crises. Might get sick, personal, it might get divorced, personal, it might have a bankruptcy, professional, it might have, you know, but very few have all three. And the public piece was something I never could have imagined, like the dynamic of that. I mean, media trucks outside of our house. We had a one-year-old at the time. You know, just things that you just... People couldn't get into our office without walking by media trucks. I mean, things that you would never imagine for people who... You know, our staff was social workers. It was, you know, direct service providers, public policy experts, research experts... You know, people who had, first of all, no interest in cycling, no <laughs> background in cycling, and yet they were being asked to defend something that really had nothing to do with it. That was the hardest part. Yeah, I bet. I bet. 
Yeah, it's a really, um, and it's an interesting thing just to kind of, you know, um, highlight before we move on, you know, because I'm, I'm just thinking about the experience of that, right? That the challenge and the difficulty, the the newness, the the learning, the the three Ps. I mean, you know, boy, are you getting some serious learning fast, right? And and you know. What what a great experience! I mean, it's it's it sure wasn't at the time, right? It's it's literally you know causing you to change how you feel and and act, right? But but do you now look back on that, going, boy, like I, I you know I can handle a lot. I've been through some some crazy stuff. I mean, that's yeah. got to have served you. Yeah, you know it, it has, and and I'll say two quick anecdotes on that. One. During the crisis, the height of the crisis, I, I met with one of my colleagues who was a young woman who was was a navigator, which means she was answering the phone calls of newly diagnosed individuals. And she and I were just chatting one day in my cube, and and I, I said to her, I said, "Who do you have to talk to about this?" And she said, "Well, I talked to my dad." And I said, "Well, what does he say?" And at the time, this young woman was probably 25, 26 years old. And she said, "My dad told me if I keep my eyes and ears open, I'll learn more in the next six months than I could learn anywhere else in the world." And he was right. It was like such a profound sort of statement. I'll never forget it. So, but, but again, at the time, you can't process it. And I think a lot of us are dealing with that right now. Like you're forced to make so many decisions in the moment and they're made under duress in some cases. They're made with imperfect information. They're, you, know, you don't have the luxury of, of reflection right now. But I will tell you, when I moved to Columbus, it was not more than two or three weeks that I woke up and I felt like a different person. Mm. Yeah, I, you know that's that's. I'm glad you said that because it's exactly what I wanted to kind of talk about next. Tell me about the decision to move to Columbus. You know, tell you know Austin. I think is a city that a lot of people here really uh, kind of aspirationally want Columbus to to look like. You know, at some point in the future, and you know, many of us have gone there and got to experience it and it's a great place to live you know and uh, you know and, and and so tell me about the decision to leave Austin and come to Columbus and and then you know what your experience has been like here as we kind of transition into talking about Pelotonia yeah look Austin's a great city we had no interest in leaving no desire to leave no plans to leave but as things happened you know there, there was some outreach from the community here and you know I had I had known of Pelotonia for for a long time since inception, really, and uh, had had the privilege of getting to know Tom Lennox and Kelly Griesmer and, and others. Uh, Mike Caligiuri, I'd known for many, many years, and, uh, and through him, others in the community, Gordon Gee, et cetera. So anyway, they called one day and said, hey, would you ever have an interest in chatting with us? And I said, no, we're happy. We're, we love Austin. Then um, they started calling my wife um, and saying, uh, would she ever have an interest in coming to visit? Um, but there was clearly something going on here in Columbus. I mean, there was clearly something here, and and it didn't take long for us to realize that, you know, there was something special. And I say that because again, we loved Austin, still do. My wife has family there, and we had a one and a three year old. And and the example I always give is you know, we had bought a house six months before we moved here. So you know, we clearly did not think we were going anywhere. Um, but the more we learned about not just Pelotonia, but the way that things were operating in Columbus and the aspirations that, that people here had, um, the more intriguing it was. 
because I think for us here in Columbus, we, you can take for granted the things we have. Um, you can take for granted the fact that we have some of the best cultural institutions. You can take for granted that we have some of the best medical care. You can take for granted, like, and those things don't just happen. Those things happen because of years of investment and because people care. And, you know, not that Austin doesn't have great cultural amenities, but it's different. Um, it, it doesn't have the legacy or the history of uh, investment that we enjoy here and that contributes to our quality of life. So the opportunity to come help lead an organization that had already had tremendous success, but that had unlimited opportunity was appealing, uh, was super appealing, and that had the support and generosity of so many in the community. So that's what led us here. And it's been pretty remarkable because like I said, we showed up and I realized very quickly and I said to my wife one morning, I said, I just realized that most of the world doesn't live with the stress that we've been under for the last few years. Mm-hmm. And it was years. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, I think it, it turns out to be a really win-win for everybody, right? Because there's not that many opportunities um, I, I don't think you know you, you know better than I do that would have kind of matched that exact skill set that you had, right? And boy, there wasn't that many people that really knew how to to take Pelotonia to where it is today. So you know, for you and for Pelotonia, I think it's been you know a real win. And then there's the broader win for the community. There's the broader win for the cause. I mean, it turns out to be a, a phenomenal thing all around. And I think, you know, we're all really fortunate that you're doing what you're doing. And, and I'm curious, you know, I, I would have liked to have asked you this question before the pandemic. Um, so I'm going to kind of ask you, you know, both as a before and after, um, what does the future look like? What kinds of things were you guys working on what kinds of things you know i know um a little bit from just being involved in the momentum fund that there is a real set of innovation and creativity and um a real kind of let's not just you know rest on what we've done there's a forward thinking uh, mindset in the organization there's new leadership you know joe and others that have really stepped up you know, it, it, there's a lot of great stuff happening. And then obviously we've got a pretty big pivot now. And I think, you know, this this podcast will release, you know, in time with your announcements. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about both, you know, those paths, you know, long-term or, and maybe, you know, for this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, one of the great things about Pelotonia is it's always had a vision to be bigger and better and, and improve. And that's driven by the board and driven by our partners and, and people who are super generous like you and your colleagues and your family. Um, so I think, look, we've always had big aspirations. We've always known that Pelotonia was way more than a bike ride. It's, it's a community of people trying to do something that none of us can do on our own. And I think that's the essence of human nature. What can we do together that we can't do on our own? And that's why this has been successful. This has not been successful because people love spandex and they love to go you know, ride their bikes as fast as they can. That, that is, has much less to do with it than the community building aspect of it. It's actually been successful in spite of the spandex. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, I think what this has done for us in a, in a very positive way, and there aren't very many positives from this pandemic, so I'll preface this. Um, 
it's expedited and provided urgency to things that we always wanted to do, that we may have put on the back burner, we may have thought we don't have time, we don't have the money, we don't have the resources, we don't have the team, we don't have the, whatever it is, because we were so busy doing what we were doing. And this has forced us to slow down and say, you know what? This is the perfect time to go all in on that. So whether it's a new digital strategy to engage people in a more uh, seamless way, whether it's, it's to get beyond just having the ride be the focal point of the whole year. You know, the ride is supposed to be the reward for months of training and fundraising and engagement. And so those things need to continue to happen. And our mission, I would argue, is more important today than it was three months ago because people with cancer are more vulnerable. They're at higher risk. People are showing up uh, to chemotherapy with no family and friends and visitors allowed which is understandable. Um, but you think about the, the stress that both the patients and their families, as well as the physicians and scientists are under right now, you know, it makes what we do more critical. And so um, we're super excited about 2020 in a really weird way, which is we're not going to enforce fundraising. We're not going to have a mass ride with thousands of people, but we're going to encourage everybody to have their own Pelotonia. Like, what is my Pelotonia? I'm going to create my goal, both athletically and fundraising-wise, and everyone else, thousands and thousands of people are going to do the same. And somebody's goal may be that I'm going to give blood every week, or I'm going to go volunteer every week, or I'm going to run a marathon, or I'm going to walk every day with my kids. Whatever it is, like, that's your Pelotonia. And what it's going to do is it's going to add up to something way larger than any of us could imagine. Because you don't have to be in Columbus, Ohio on August 7th, 8th, or 9th. We will do some things around that weekend and, and celebrate, but it's, it's accessible and democratized and open to anyone. And we always wanted to do that. And this is giving us the impetus and the urgency to do it now. Yeah, you know, I think maybe it's because it's fresh in my mind. I watched uh, the Silver Lining Playbook uh, movie last night with my son. And, um, you know, I think it's okay for us to talk about silver linings. And... You know, I'm just sitting here thinking selfishly, you know, I I attempted to be a cyclist. I all I have to show for it is an expensive bike sitting in my garage. Um, but I'm not. And when I hear you talk about my Pelotonia, I'm energized. You know, I, I love the idea that this is something that we can all now create in a way that fits um for us, right? Because again, the focus is about the cause, right? Um, and so I think this is really a silver lining that you will transform the organization um, by coming up with ways to recreate. I love that you said, you know, we are not canceling. We don't cancel. That's not part of who we are. That language I thought was really powerful. You're just going to do it differently. You're going to adapt. And I think that's really, really a great, important message to send, both about the race, the organization, and about kind of life, you know, and 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 fighting the the cause. You know, you, you can't cancel is not an option. Adapting, let's you know, come together, let's figure it out, uh, is is pretty uh, a phenomenal message to be sending. Yeah, look, I agree. We decided early on, and, and I'm really proud of our team because the creativity and entrepreneurship that they're sort of showing is is 
phenomenal. We decided early on there are two words we're not going to use. We're not going to use cancel and we're not going to use virtual. Because as things play out, virtual has become, in my opinion, overused. Everybody's saying, we're going virtual, we're going virtual, we're going virtual. Like, what does that mean? And in Pelotonia's case, it's about human connection. And it's about doing something, setting a goal and trying to achieve something, whether it be fundraising, physical activity, whatever it might be. And that's not going to be virtual. <laughs> you know, like, like we're going to still do those things. We're just going to do it differently. And um, look, we're very lucky. We're lucky that we have our funding partners who you know, support the organization to allow us this flexibility and, and time to be creative. Um, and I think we will emerge from this way stronger than when we went in. And, and I wish I could say the same for everyone. And I know that's not the case because the, the economic and, and, and health uncertainties right now are massive. And we don't, we don't take that, you know, uh, we take that very seriously. And so, you know, all that said, we're, we're all in, we're, we're not, uh, we're not canceling. We're, um, we're sort of doubling down in a way to try to have an opportunity for more people uh, to participate in whatever form or fashion they want. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think, a testament to your journey. You know, this is kind of the point, again, of this podcast is to really kind of let people see how things have unfolded. And there's certainly been challenges along the way. Some of them, you know, life-threatening and some of them, you know, kind of scary and, and, and some of them um, really beautiful and positive, you know, um, as we kind of started out talking about your parents and your community, um, you know, growing up where you did, where there was this kind of embodiment of what it meant to be a part of community, to be of service. Um, and then, you know, as you experience the crisis, you know, with um, Livestrong, you know, to find yourself here today doing what you do, you know, you, you've been built for it. This has been your life. You know, you're ready. And, and you know, that's why I think uh, you have the organization that you have, the team that you have, the support that you have. And that's why this year will be a great ride and, and really transformative year for, for Pelotonia. So that is all awesome. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate you taking time to, to, to share that story. We love having you at Gravity, having um, your headquarters there means a lot to what we're trying to do with that community, um, bringing people together to collaborate, to try to make a difference in the world. And you guys are an important part of that. And uh, yeah, any final thoughts or anything you want to make sure people know about the ride? Anything else that uh, you want to share with the, with the audience? No, look, I appreciate the opportunity and your support and friendship and, and collaboration has been meaningful. And look, I think we're all fortunate to be in a place that cares so much. And, you know, in each our own way, there's so much we can do to, to lift up the broader community. And at a time like this, we have to. It's our responsibility to do whatever we can. And Elton is a very small part of, of the overall work, but uh, we're honored to be headquartered and based and focused here in Columbus, Ohio. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.